Today is the International Day Against Homophobia, Biphobia, and Transphobia. On this occasion, Rights on the Line brings you three interviews with human rights defenders that support and defend the rights of the global LGBTQ community. In today's episode, you will hear from Yildiz Tar, the Media and Communications Officer for Turkish LGBTQ organization Chaos GL, Blesol Gethoni, LGBTQ activist and community organizer working in Kenya, and Anwar Rahmani, independent novelist and LGBT rights defender in Algeria. In the first interview for today's International Day Against Homophobia, Biphobia, and Transphobia episode, we will hear an interview done with Anwar Rahmani. Anwar is the first Algerian activist who has publicly called for same-sex marriage to be legally recognized in Algeria. Because of his work defending the rights of LGBTQ identifying folks in Algeria, Anwar has faced threats, intimidation tactics, and judicial harassment from authorities in Algeria. I talk by myself. Yeah. Okay. So, so I'm Anwar Rahmani. I am a writer, a novelist actually, and also I'm a human rights defender in Algeria. I just work for uh, for uh, all the categories of human rights. I mean, I'm not categorized in uh, in such in one in one special special uh, human rights kind of human rights. So, I I fight for LGBT rights, for women rights, for uh, intellectual rights and for right of expression and uh, I, I use my all kind of tools to do that I mean by, like my principal tool is my pen and my writing I do have three novels are all banned now in Algeria and I have uh, my column in one in, uh, in a newspaper in Algeria and it was also banned now I'm actually you can call me una persona non grata when was it uh, banned? The, uh, the column in the newspaper was uh, was it recently? It was last uh, last year before they called me the po- before the, the police calling that I received in uh, in March. It was before. Okay. Yeah. And uh, what about uh, the books? Why they were banned? They are banned because they are dealing with uh, with human rights uh, issues and also uh, rights of expression. Because you know my writings are all uh, are all about uh, about philosoph- philosophic uh, ideas and about political uh, ideas. So it it can it can be can be seen as a, as a threat for the regime and for the government. Let me say the. The ex, the ex, 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 the like there is a legislator and uh, and the judiciary. judiciary and and the third one is and, uh, <laughs> <laughs> the, I don't know how to call it in English actually. Okay. So actually about the government, yeah, the yeah. Authorities. About the authority, so so my work is um, is representing a threat because uh, it's because it's pushing people to, to think and to and to re reestablish uh, a new social system, a new program. As I'm as I have a new project for the society, a new social project where uh, I'm based where it's based 
about individual freedoms. You know, we are li really living in a very, uh, very, um, uh, very dictator dictator society where uh, where the only the majority idea is the is the it's the uh, it's the emperor idea. So you cannot be you cannot be very. You cannot have your own way of thinking, your own ideas. You're just uh, you have always to pretend to be to look like everybody and to be a part of the part of the the majority, which I cannot be. Yeah. And also, before you were telling me about the constitution that you wrote in a blog. Yeah. Yeah. Actually, I wrote the first independent constitution in Algeria. It's not just. Uh, Simple constitution. It's very creative constitution as, as, as uh, for Algeria. You know, Algeria has very uh, traditional constitution where uh, where it's where where the general way of uh, governing is actually a Jacobian way, where everything is central in the capital. Even though we like we have like this kind of provinces and stuff, but actually it's not really it's not really working because actually everything is is based on the capital. So this is this is actually reminding me of the of a movie, uh, the Hunger the the Hunger Game. It's a, yeah, it's kind of the same thing in Algeria. Everything is based on the capital, and nothing is very. Not other places are not really very allowed to to um, to govern themselves with themselves. I mean, so so what I just so why I just. Uh, uh, presenting my constitution is kind of a new federal system in Algeria and uh, where no one is a leader. The, the idea of a leader is, 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 uh, is all cancelled and uh, deleted in, in my constitution. Uh, so I've made big changes in the powers. So, so that's why so too many legal offices, like they told me that, uh, that this is, can be a, a very um, not just dangerous. It's, it, it is. They just tell me that this is very. Um, uh, it's, it's like it's like a, uh, it's like it's like a future constitution for Algeria. You see, like like Algeria will have to be. We have to go that way that I just planned it on my constitution. But with time, like I'm just uh, I'm just I just wrote what 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 future will give to Algeria. And I also made a new legal system for the family. Because you know, in Algeria, the family legal. We have we have a law. We have a law. Uh, we have a family law that give uh, less rights for women and more rights for men. And uh, I just write a new, new, new family law system where everyone is uh, everyone is equal. So this, this is this, so my my legal experience that I'm done is like. Uh, it's a project, actually. It's a new legal project. I'm trying to change the the principal idea of law in Algeria. As I'm trying also to to change the literal general idea in Algeria. I'm, this is what I'm tra actually trying to do. I'm actually trying to go to the to the to the races and try to to change them from from uh, from below. I mean. So, so I'm changing the point of view, the general point of view of the general mind, of the society mind, of what I'm doing. This is actually I'm, I'm, I'm just thinking about the future. Yeah.
Yeah, I'm actually now writing a new novel. It's actually about the outer sex persons, people who are who are you no know, sexual defined. Uh, they just like they are no boy, no man, no no woman. I'm writing a novel about that, and it's actually gonna be the first novel about this issue. It's actually the first Arabic novel about this issue. And it's then what, you will publish this one in, in Egypt again. too. Yeah, but actually, in the, the the Atlas editions in Egypt are they do have uh, they do have their. I mean, they they sell their books in all the Arab countries. It's a big. It's, it's, yeah, so my novels are now also in Baghdad, in Iraq, in Libya, in Palestine. Yeah, in uh, in Saudi Arabia, but now are banned too. <laughs> in Qatar, in Bahrain. Yeah. Not in Qatar, in Bahrain, because Qatar they, now they don't have relationship with Egypt. Okay. So it's clear that there is no book, my books yeah. there. Yeah. That's good, everywhere. <laughs> I'm banning everywhere. <laughs> yeah, I'm meaning to be banned in life too. <laughs> I can, I can, uh, I can, I can see that somehow. Yeah. I think it's good that a message. There is something you want to add. There, there is something else you want to say or. I call for the international society <laughs> to, to, to put an eye in Algeria, a uh, protective eye in Algeria, because Algeria is not, it's part of the world too. It's not because we don't have war now here, it means that everything is okay. So this is it. So I'm going to, to watch the situation and to be more careful about, about this, what's happening now. Too many people are persecuted because of their beliefs and because of their religion beliefs. And actually, the government is now what's doing now. It's not because they are trying to protect Islam or something, because it's not really very religious government. What's doing now is they are actually trying to manipulate the people, the majority, so they be uh, because they lost their legitimacy to say I'm now looking for another kind of legitimacy. So they so they picked up the religious one. So I'm calling I'm calling you guys everywhere in the world. I'm telling you like Algeria, it's not uh, it's not Syria. If we don't have a I mean, uh, we don't have uh, a war here. It's not Germany, it's not a perfect place. But actually, Algeria is also part of the, of the third world where some people are trying to, to, be, to, to make it better, but some people are just, uh, are just stopping them from doing that. Blessel Gethoni is a community organizer and social rights activist in Kenya. So for a long time in the queer community, for about four or five years, I did human rights work and most around understanding the human rights violations um, that were being done against queer people for real or perceived sexual orientation. And I worked in Nairobi with grassroots communities to kind of just address one, one, the questions that were raised with people around economic stability or their lack of, and what that meant for people's um, capacity to be able to assess basic needs and also some of the needs that were given by institutions, for example, the government. So while I was working at the time, I was working with minority women in action and went on to be part of like the Gay and Lesbian Coalition of Kenya, 
I did the work of um, documenting human rights violations, mobilizing community around particular events, and also at the same time being able to be part of institutional support and community work around participatory research in understanding what it meant for queer communities to exist in their communities or in our Kenyan society as it was at the time. So I learned a lot in that time, um, the very basic understandings of human rights frameworks and understood how different institutions came together to A, be able to um, talk to the community, for instance, or raise awareness and advocacy around LGBTIQ community in Kenya, but also generally be able to create more spaces where queer people could be able to, be, to gather and be together and think to, together with, with the society. Um, through this process, however, I decided to redirect my work and energy, and that's because in engaging communities from churches to, um, to uh, from religious leaders to different governmental stakeholding processes to NGOs in Kenya to like some of the community mobilization and organizing work we did, I realized that we were not separate f from the rest of the society or community in Kenya. Um, and that made me refocus my energy, knowing that I was out as a queer person or proudly a lesbian person but at the same time decided to just be able to say I'm out and at the same time a person who cares so much about what's happening in society in general. So I realized we were not part or we were not separate from community and we were going through struggles as the rest of the communities in Kenya. So we were going through, yes, the question of access to food, to food, shelter, education, etc. But also we were being impacted by some of the conversations, for instance, around what colonialism or coloniality did in Kenya, around the question of land and housing, urban development, the question of development in itself as a whole. So that's the work I'm doing now. The work of being able to connect queer struggles in Kenya and specifically in Nairobi, young people in Nairobi, and how they understand self-determination from the historic events that have been there, but also what is happening right now with our governments, with NGOs, with churches and everything else. I still do the work of documentation, but this time you document around understanding what does it mean, for instance, to do queer sex work and the question of policing in city and what does policing does in, in relation to urban development. And have you faced any reprisals for this work? Yes, I have. Um, and some directly from the system, the government system in Kenya, but also I've faced very internal process. I think those have been the more hurtful ones within uh, people who work within the human rights framework with, or people who work in the media sector with, or people who work in the basically just everyday organizing of communities and mobilization of communities to, towards particular events or particular rights or particular um, accountability and responsible processes. That has been the most painful. I have been... Um, violate my comrades in terms of like direct language online, for instance, in emails around my sexuality and why I should be engaged in other struggles in Kenya. I've also been, this is like direct emails that attack my sexual orientation and hence my capacity to be able to do the work that is being done by every other human right defender in Kenya. And then from there, there's been the question of sometimes responding two late night, uh, uh, late night conversations around women who I organize with, um, the, the movement that I organize with, or people who have organized with, the Bungala Amawa Mashinani. So being called at night to deal with questions of gender-based violence or dealing with questions of minors being abused by older men in terms of um, being sold for sex, either by their families or, uh, or, or close friends, and going there and um, using my sexuality and knowing that I'm not able to call for help in an instance where they're in their own environment and attacking that procedure or in that process. Um, that has been the most scary one because I was actually very afraid that I had gone to respond to a plight of a young person and then there was two men there and I wasn't sure if they were going to rape me or not. Um, 
But the people working in the building, especially like women who are doing sex work, were the ones who like raised the alarm and were like, something is happening, please come help this person. And I managed to just like run in the last minute. Uh, I don't know how that happened, but it was one of the scariest events. And then one with the institution, we were working around tax justice in Kenya. And I was part of the coordinators of the tax justice organizing. And in the time, there was a lot of arbitrary arrest for part of commercial from Bungala, Mama Bungala Monanchi. And in those moments, the state was visiting not just only my house, but houses of other people to try and figure out what was this campaigning about, who was behind it, who was doing this work. And I think that has been the most scariest part when there was people inside my house asking me questions about the work I do with guns. That, that, that was kind of um, the worst um, situation I have had. I understand. Well, this kind of leads into the next topic that I wanted to ask you about, which is sort of the overall climate for members of the LGBTQ community in Kenya um, and for HRDs working within that community as well. Does your experience speak to some of what others experience as well? Yes, I think the LGBTQ community and the climate of uh, like uh, people doing work on sexual orientation highly touches also on like spaces to be able to express yourself, to assemble, to mobilize and organize, and to think as a unit or as a group around questions of how do we imagine our futures, how do we imagine um, being able to survive in highly um, repressive regimes, how do we imagine um, being able to be economically capable, or if not, to have a culture around us that allows us to not be economically stable, but able to just survive what is happening in our country. And I think the climate of the queer community in Kenya is struggling around these lines. The question of um, shrinking civil society spaces, which has been the spaces where communities in Kenya, from the constitutional process all the way until now, um, process of democracy and everything, have been able to organize themselves, you know, and demand accountability from the government system, demand accountability from the private-public partnerships. So I think the shrinking of, like, the civil society spaces has been one of a bigger factor in the ways in which uh, queer organizing can articulate itself in Kenya. Secondly is the question of society, um, which I think is the most hurtful one, where the way society is organized in itself um, understands community organizing from a very heteronormative, heteropatriarchal, and it, to some extent imperialist, capitalist way. So um, you find that to imagine ourselves being part of a society means alienation. So you arrange and organize yourselves away from the society and then figure out how you're going to survive. Or within society, there's a lot of stigma, discrimination, and most of the time just pushed on the side, and sometimes in very subtle ways and sometimes in very violent ways. There's been cases of raping of young women, lesbians. Kenya in general has an issue of men being violent against women, but more so around also queer women, especially around the elections. There was a lot of uh, cases brought in by queer community organizers, grassroots organizers, saying there were queer women who were specifically targeted, beaten and raped because of their sexual orientation. So you find a particular event in the country that is quite violent, makes people just go directly for queer persons and queer bodies because they're easier to commit violations to. The other thing is meeting everyday challenges, like every other Kenyan is struggling, um, to put food on the table in a system that believes because of your sexual orientation or perceived sexual orientation, you cannot be able to get a job. 
to get proper education where the school talks about this heteronormative existence in a very religious way that makes you a very um, controversial issue or like unable to express yourself or learn in a healthy way when you're being pushed um, in directions that make you feel like you do not belong. And then also being part of families. I think being thrown away from families cuts off queer communities from like the interpersonal of families. Um, the intergenerational wisdom and things that come from being able uh, to be held by extended or close families that make it possible to survive in any African society. And then the last one has been just internal internal issues, which I think is also happening in every other space, of the questions of class, what dynamics are we having in terms of resource mobilization, um, and what does that mean in terms of negotiating class when the people who are controlling the resources or the ways resources are dispersed are within a particular class bracket that then doesn't ensure resources flowing into grassroots communities, for instance, or grassroots communities dealing with LGBTIQ community issues. So that is the environment or the climate of queer of queer LGBTI communities. And to organize against these multifaceted um, societies, not just ignorance, but programming where you understand the hetero to be the normal the homosexual to be the, the the thing that is not normative, and then from there to align it in terms of their personal accesses, health, education, jobs, um, just basic moving on the streets, the way they express themselves with love, and um, the ways in which they want to organize themselves has become quite a shaky environment that does not allow um, LGBTIQ um, organizing. On the International Day Against Homophobia, Biphobia, and Transphobia, can you speak to your hopes for the LGBTQ community in Kenya? I will start by saying I'm in a point of hopefulness because the events of the country in the last few months have shown a uh, convers- conversations that are moving within the mainstream about homosexuality, about sexual orientation, about um, gender identity that is forcing the society to engage in this conversation even post um, a very hectic time in Kenya where there was three three to five months where there was uncertainty of who the president of the country was and where the country was going to go to. Um, I was very, um, I've been very moved with some of the mileage and processes within the mainstream space and some of the conversations they've been able to engage in the litigation process that has made me hopeful in A. Um, and one of the hopes that I have right now and possibilities that I'm seeing, from seeing the judicial system engage the question or take the petitioning of repealing section 162 to um, the society engaging a conversation about a queer production or a film that was produced a few weeks ago um, called Rafiki on uh, lesbian relationships to, um, to Nigolak the National Gay and Lesbian Human Rights Coalition being able to register themselves as exactly what they are. I am seeing possibilities and the possibilities in Kenya um, in terms of A, engaging the legal process, B, engaging society and the opinion polls and um, the mainstream media, and number three, being able to have people who are talking openly about the ways in which they want to love the ways in which they want to uh, express themselves sexually and in their body and the thoughts that they have and people saying they want to be having dignified lives and people saying we have a right to self-determination. The ways in which there has been a backlash to the 
for instance, censoring of this movie, um, to the celebration, the little celebrations that were there when um, Nicolak was allowed to register, to them being, to the judicious to be able to take this um, this particular petition. My hopes are just exactly that, that as queer people, we are allowed to be part of the society, not allowed. We are going to fight also to be part of the society and to also be self, like we can self-determine. We can also be able to love, to be, to imagine ourselves as dignified human beings. And more than anything, the spaces of unfreedoms that we have right now, um, that the things that are going to be to be lifted, not just from the litigation processes, because right now, I'm seeing the litigation process as one of the ways in which a conversation is opening up in society, but also just structures to have movements and social movements, whole space to imagine that queer struggles are the same as every other struggle in Kenya. I cannot put this and I cannot emphasize this enough, that there needs to be structures within ourselves as people who organize, community organizers, as activists and everything, to just start to think about when we are talking about every other possible right in Kenya, the queer struggle is an equally powerful um, equally challenging, equally uh, a space to reflect and chant the liberation of the Kenyan people. That's that's my hopes um, for Idaho. And the work that is being done so far is very beautiful and amazing. And I think if we could bring the structures to the conversations and how mainstream is playing out, um, queer struggles have a possibility in the future. The final interview we will hear for the International Day Against Homophobia, Biphobia and Transphobia is with Yildiz Tar about the work he does with KSGL and the LGBTQ community in Ankara, Turkey. I'm Yildiz Tar, a journalist and an LGBTI rights defender. I'm working for KSGL. KSGL is one of the first LGBTI organizations in Turkey. It was founded in 94 and actually it started a journey with a magazine and now we are working in like several fields but I am the media and communication program coordinator of the organization. Basically, uh, I'm working for our online newspaper, Kastjel.org, as a chief editor, and also I'm working for our uh, magazine. And we are like working in the education, uh, workplace, human rights, human rights reporting, media, like every field you can imagine. And now we are uh, in a city where LGBT events are banned. And uh, maybe I may talk about about yeah. what happened in, in that plan. Uh, actually, the everything started in uh, two or three years ago. Uh, the Islamic State uh, there was a like a military document leaked to the social media saying that Islamic State will target Kafshia. And after that, we asked for the uh, Ankara Governor's Office and Ankara Police Department whether it is a true or false document, or and if it is true, or will they protect us? The answer was, we cannot protect you because we don't have enough police. And uh, we talked uh, with the army and uh, they like gave us information so-called off the record saying that the document is true. But they said that they cannot protect us too. So we have to move. And this was like a very uh, milestone about LGBTI issue in Turkey. And in those years, um, they started to ban uh, LGBTI pride marches in Istanbul, and the police started to attack. Like last year was a Turkish, it was banned. And also in Ankara, usually in the May, in International Day Against Homophobia and Transphobia, which is 17th May, uh, we were uh, like having a march, and it was banned too. And uh, with the state of emergency, everything became much more uh, like 
harsh for the LGBTI community and police violence become a very regular phenomenon to hate attacks uh, increased and the last um, like uh, thing was the ban what was the ban it was like in November uh, 27th like six months ago approximately five or six months ago we woke up and learned that Ankara governor's office just banned any LGBTI events in the city indefinitely on the grounds of public safety, public morality, public health, and to protect the rights of the others, which was a very ridiculous ground. Uh, and uh, now the ban is still continuing. We opened up a case against the ban, and we wanted uh, to just stop the execution of the ban, but it was rejected. And now we are in a situation where we cannot do any public event in Ankara related to LGBTI issues. And we don't know what will happen if we do, by the way. It is not like if they shut us down or they close us or the police will come and raid, we don't know. And also this is not only a, like a, a ban coming from executive uh, organs of the, the government, but this also gives a message to the society, purges like the hate attacks and because uh, by that, the Ankara governor's office saying that being an LGBTI person or organizing an LGBTI event is against public morality. And this is a very clear message saying that just kill them or harm them. And uh, now we are mainly focusing on to just leave the ban. Uh, but we are not very hopeful because the judiciary process would be wrong. And each day that the ban is here, it causes like irreversible harms. To ask because the LGBT organizations in Turkey is really vital. There isn't any social security for LGBTIs. The LGBTQ or queer people cannot just uh, reach the basic rights like education, healthcare, or any other thing. Or even if you just get attacked, usually the judiciary process becomes a really long one, and uh, the like um, the perpetrators don't get enough. Uh, punishment. So in this condition, the LGBT organizations are basically the only place that a young or old, gay or lesbian or transgender people can go and just do something for themselves. So if you ban that too, you just basically give a message that we don't want any LGBTI person in our country. So this is the situation we are dealing with in Turkey yeah. right now. Okay, I want to talk to what you were mentioning before, what are the channels of Putin as an organization now that you tend to organize events and more on training and capacity building, if you can well, talk a little bit about that. Even though the situation is really bad, there are still some things to do, something you have to do. And after the ban, we changed our strategy and uh, we are not the only LGBT organization. There are lots of newly founded LGBT organizations and they need uh, some, um, they need information, they need empowerment, and we are trying to empower all the LGBTI movement through some capacity development activities. Through, uh, like in this case, just an example, there are lots of human rights uh, violations are happening. But if you don't have anyone to report that, it becomes invisible. So we are giving trainings on how to report a human rights violation, what are our rights to the LGBTI rights defenders, this is one step. Or the second is usually the state is using some uh, laws uh, against us, or uh, like the law-regulated associations. 
that what, what is that all? We are giving trainings on that issues. We are giving trainings on uh, like um, we have a media school, uh, which is like our kind of approach to media is LGBT people's stories are not told in the media. And in the best scenario, if someone tells that story, they just violate their story. So we are uh, trying to encourage LGBT people to tell their own story. Which is one thing we are trying to Because these kind of harsh times regarding human rights, uh, you only uh, have to you have to just continue telling your story. And we are trying to give inspiration to LGBT communities to just continue telling story. Just if you can't tell your story with a public debate, just use the social media. Uh, if you if you are not feeling safe, just use other names. You can just create other tools to continue telling story because when these days will be over, uh, if we uh, are still here and continue telling our stories, I think that would be a success. Mm. No, that's really good, good and very true. There has been also like a backlash on social media, imagine mm, like yeah. in the. One of our colleagues, Ali, he was taken in detention too, like in generally. Um, the government is now really surveilling the social media if and if you say anything against the government or if you just demand peace or if you just criticize something it becomes some uh, they investigated and usually you get uh, detention uh, our colleague Alero who is also our founder by the way he was one of the um, person who, who were in the first team in 94 he got arrested Uh, by the police because he uh, wrote something about peace. He just basically said that uh, he wants peace. Mm-hmm. And uh, he got arrested. He was in a detention center for five days, mm-hmm. uh, if I'm not wrong. And uh, now the, uh, we, are, we don't know whether there will be a trial, but the investigation process continues. And uh, the, he, he is just one example. There are many other examples about human rights defenders. If you say anything about just reminding the government that state of emergency is not an excuse to violate human rights, that becomes a problem. If they want a society which is silent, don't say anything or don't defend their own rights in a way, and it is very vital now to just continue defending that rights and continue reminding that because this is not something that they grant us, this is something we have by birth in a way. It's really amazing what uh, you're doing. Uh, I don't know if there is uh, something else you want to add. Uh... In Turkey, even though like now uh, they are pressing everyone, mm. uh, some groups aren't in vis- uh, visible in the human rights defenders too. LGBTIs are one of them. Like Usually the human rights movement in Turkey, which is very important and a really great job, but they have a tendency to tell the stories of big major events and Usually the LGBTI people are invisible in the human rights movement too. So it becomes uh, double thing. Like yeah. This government is not your only uh, thing that you are struggling against. Usually you are struggling uh, and you are trying to prove the human rights movement that uh, look, we are here and they are pressing us too. And I think it, it harms more in a way because you see them as your natural allies. Yeah. But usually uh, there is a prejudice going on among the human rights defenders, so it makes you like double thumb precarious situation.
Thank you for joining Rights on the Line for the International Day Against Homophobia, Biphobia, and Transphobia. Frontline Defenders was founded in Dublin in 2001 to provide the resources for the security and protection of human rights defenders at risk around the world. Rights on the Line is a new podcast initiative produced in-house by Frontline Defenders to present the work, the struggles, and the perspectives of HRDs at risk. Special thanks for this episode go to guests Yildiz Tar of Turkey, Blasol Gathoni of Kenya, and Anwar Rahmani of Algeria. Our music is from Let's Start at the Beginning by Lee Rosevere.